You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. Well, it is that time again. Uh, we are back for uh, what what has become just... Uh, a, Frankly, it hasn't. It's not happening enough, Nije. We we uh, we need to we need to be together more because every time we're together, we have a really fun time and we get for really sure. terrific responses from so many so many people. But uh, to our listeners, welcome back to Slow Theology. Uh, we're going to spend uh, some time to, today and talk about uh, a topic that um, has kind of popped up in my life more and more and more. I know recently you've been uh, at a number of academic conferences, SBL, uh, Society for Biblical Literature. Right. Um, I've been uh, at a couple conferences myself. We're both writing uh, We're both writing our book, Slow Theology, which we're really excited yeah. about. Uh, write, writing a book that's going to be coming out on the topic of this podcast. But I want to talk today about, and maybe it's relational. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's been like just personal, and I've seen it a lot of times in, in, in the last couple of years. But this this the story of friends of mine, colleagues of mine, um, who are evangelical or Protestant, who are, for one reason or another, uh, find themselves really drawn to um, more liturgical traditions. Um, in yeah. fact, I've had a number of friends in the last ten years who have converted to Catholicism, and a number have become Eastern Orthodox, uh, who become become Orthodox. And um, I wanted to talk. Because we, I actually got an email, Nijay, from a listener who is really sort of almost, they're losing sleep over whether they can continue to be an evangelical. They, they are really struggling with um, being a Protestant and, and, yeah. and desire to be a part of a more ancient uh, tradition, a more ancient uh, a more ancient faith. Um, it's a pretty common experience actually for me at the university where I teach to have um, two students, one is a Protestant, one is a Catholic. And and they come into my office. They're dating, and they you know one of them needs to kind of decide you know who they're going to be and and if they're going to be Catholic or Protestants together. <clears throat> and it raises the question of you know are, is it okay to become a Catholic and and why would right. one become a Catholic? Um, neither you or I are Catholics. We're both um, broadly right. broadly evangelical Protestant. Um, I'm on the charismatic side of things, um, and I've had those experiences. I've had moments of feeling so frustrated with the the evangelical world that at times I've thought I want to, I want to become a Catholic. And actually for me, Nijay, here's been something for me that's been, I hate using the word temptation. Like it's a sin to become a Catholic. (laughs) But the thing that's been so tempting for me is that um, I often grow really sad. Like I almost get like, it's like language, like I'm languishing over the fact that um, we place so much authority in the teaching ministry of the church on a local personality. And, and I get really almost scared that we give so much authority to a local personality that I just want us to like, if we could just have a magisterium where it's all the same everywhere you go. And, you know, because <laughs> in, in the Catholic tradition, right, you've got a set core teaching that doesn't change from place to place. It's the, the same right. everywhere you go. Now, I'm not a Catholic. I'm not going to become a Roman Catholic and for many reasons. But I've felt those things before. And mm-hmm. I felt those desires to want to return to like a more ancient expression, to want to be a part of a, a broader, more global movement. Have you ever felt those things? Or am I, I mean, have you ever been on some level drawn to say Catholicism and uh, orthodoxy? Yeah. You know, I think anyone that's gone to seminary has kind of dabbled with that because I think a lot of us who went to seminary 
kind of low church, um, Baptisty or kind of um, pop evangelical, uh, you start to get introduced to kind of the deeper traditions, hmm. the catechisms. And I think you just become enchanted with the beautiful history of the church. So I think in, at some point it's just kind of an appreciation for the fact that there, there is this long history of 2000 years of the church. And there's so many beautiful things in that history. I took a course in seminary on the history of Christian catechism and, and Christian education. And I learned about Augustine and I learned about the Catholic catechisms. and I learned about the Heidelberg catechism and I just fell in love with just the beauty of the language, the traditional hymns of the church. Yeah. I didn't really know the hymnic tradition until I went to seminary. Hmm. Um, and I remember even some of my seminary professors, we'd start off class with, you know, praise to the Lord, the mm-hmm. Almighty. The You know, I learned all these great, you know, our mighty fortress is our God. Um, and I think what what's happening in a lot of that, I, I'm, I'm going to diagnose this a little bit. AJ is one of the best things about pop evangelicalism is also one of the worst things, which is we have a short memory. (laughs) We are just like, I have this great idea. Let's start a podcast. I have this great idea. Let's go church plant somewhere and just make it up as we go along. I remember um, talking to a church plant and it seemed like they just hadn't really thought through what they were doing at all. And I remember their tagline was something, and I'm really sorry if you're listening, but it was something dumb like, we're just people loving people. And I want to be like, <laughs> is that the best you could come up with? <laughs> like, and they had this, the dumbest literature that felt really like, <laughs> like they just threw it into chat GPT, like a bunch of, a bunch of PR mumbo jumbo. And I think what happens is there's a boomerang effect that, um, you know, you get excited about, oh, I'm going to go to this church of 10,000 people and there's great coffee and cushy seats and, you know, the music is really loud and entertaining, but there's really no depth, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, you know, the, you know, the preacher has tattoos and it's all cool, but where's the depth? And then when you start to look for depth, you start to realize there's such richness in the long, deep tradition of the church. And, and yeah, we're talking about Catholics and I love my Catholic friends. We're also talking about Anglicans. You know, I work with yes. Scott McKnight. He, you know, he, I don't want to use, use the word converted, but uh, he became Anglican, you know, some, some time ago in the last 10 years. And now he's, you know, a canon theologian. And, you know, Esau Macaulay, you know, is in the Anglican tradition. Amy Peeler's Episcopal. A lot of my good friends have, have either been or have moved to these traditions. And I think what they're pointing to is, they're kind of sick of the rocking boat and shifting cultures of the evangelical movements yep. that just try to make it up as they go along. I don't know. I'm going to tell you a rumor. So I don't actually know if this is true. Okay. But I, I've heard this many, many times. So if you work for Campus Crusade for Christ, please correct me. But I've heard the four spiritual laws started with a group of leaders sitting in a room with a, with a chalkboard and saying, what are the things that we should say are the essentials of the gospel? And they came up with the four spiritual laws. So it was kind of like the cart pulling the horse rather than kind of what has the church always said are the pillars mm-hmm. of the gospel. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like, 
how do we kind of make it up here and now? I hope it was a bit deeper story than that. That's what I've always heard. Um, Bill, Bill and, Bright right now is sitting at the throne. He's, <laughs> he's, he's angry at your misrepresentation. Um, sorry, Bill. And, and, and so what I think is happening, and I think it's a good thing, is that people want depth. Yep. And they want to look at the long view. I think even what Christianity in general offers to a younger generation, even to my kids and your kid, is an opportunity to be a part of something that's been around for thousands of years. That's not transient. That, that just, yeah. yeah, it's not written on a whiteboard. Uh, do you remember, do you remember, Nijay, that book? It, was, it wasn't just a book. It was a whole movement um, spurred on, this was maybe 20 years ago, by Robert Weber, Ancient Future Faith. Yes, um, uh, Weber. It was, it was basically like a, 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 a an evangelical return to the ancient roots ancient of worship. Tradition. Yeah, yeah, the ancient traditions. And Love people it. were moved by that. I mean, yeah. one of our yeah. uh, one of our professors here at Bushnell for years, uh, she actually studied under Weber. She had a profound impact on our university, bringing back the ancient liturgical traditions to uh, our church and a deeper understanding of worship beyond merely you know, the stuff that's written on the whiteboard. There does seem to be um, a, a, a sense that I get among particularly young people, a desire for something that is less transitory, something that mm-hmm. is that, trans, that transcends moments of, you know, what, what's been going on in the last decade or two decades. Now, I also think it's important to say, though, that part of the reason I wonder people are moving into these traditions can also be a dark reason, Nijay, and that is that sometimes... Um, the grass is greener on the other side. And we think that if we, you know, if I become a Catholic or I become an Anglican or I become an Episcopalian or I become uh, Orthodox, that all of a sudden I'm a part of this magic tradition that's free of human error and and issues. Uh, When you talk to anybody that's made those, those moves, be it conversion or just transfer to a different community is, yeah, you may, you may go through a honeymoon period for a while, but the same ish that you've got in one, uh, community you're going to have in another, or it's just going to be a different form of it, just a, a different kind of, because at the, you know, for, for a Catholic, they may say, gosh, we've got uh, ancient traditions and a- ancient liturgy, but they also make decisions, the speed of glacier glaciers, you know? <laughs> so like it, they never make decisions. It took, you know, 200 years to update the liturgy. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and so at the same time, um, I, I'm going to bet that's probably why we see a lot of Catholics in say Latin America who have become Protestants or charismatics is that they need to be a part of a movement that's more connected to the contemporary moment. Um, and so it, in a way we got to be cautious if, if we're deciding to become Catholic or Orthodox or whatnot, uh, we, we're doing it out of wisdom. We're not doing it out of, I'm just really mad at the sermon last week, um, right. which, which can, can often be the case for some people is we're just like, well, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. You actually said something just a second ago, though, that I think is really important because Scott, and you don't want to put words into his mouth, but when when somebody becomes, if somebody's an evangelical and they become an Anglican, we shouldn't use the word convert because for an Anglican, it's not as though you weren't, you didn't know God and now you do. When actually, actually Protestants do that to Catholics all the time. Like, uh, like Protestants will say like, who used to be Catholics. And I got called out on this when I was actually in Rome with my wife like 10 years ago. And I said, you know, I was raised Catholic, but then, you know, but then I met Jesus and I became a Christian. And for a Catholic, that's like a deep jab. Yeah, that's offensive. 
because it, it's it's a way of saying like I was out now I'm in. I think for an evangelical, I think for a Protestant, it's okay to have a broad understanding of the gospel to say, dude, you can be a Catholic and love Jesus with all your heart. Being an totally. Anglican doesn't mean you're the frozen chosen. Being an Episcopalian doesn't necessarily mean X, Y, and Z. Like we need to have a broad gospel that that doesn't limit God's salvific work to my denomination alone. Yeah, and this is where we need to have a vision for the church as, you know, one holy Catholic apostolic church where we can have differences of um, smaller traditions and and doctrines and still be united. Um, I want to say something else. I think what I think when people are attracted to Catholicism or orthodoxy, um, they don't always know all the details, but what they're really attracted to, at least what I'm attracted to, is the way that some of these really ancient traditions have multi-sensory embodiment of mm. their traditions. Yes. So this is sometimes joked as smells and bells. Um, and we got away from that in kind of mainstream evangelicalism, but the idea of beautiful paintings and yep. images, Aesthetics. lighting candles, right? Having incense. Um, you know, I, I, I really now I'm getting as I'm getting older and older as there's more gray in my beard. Yes. Uh I'm becoming more appreciative of embodied rituals. And I think evangelicals have had an allergic reaction to ritual as if ritual is bad. Yep. As if all that matters is quote unquote the heart. Instead of seeing Catholics as legalistic, orthodox legalistic, um the best of their tradition, anyone anybody can make mistakes in their tradition, but the best of their tradition is embodiment. And I think some people are really attracted to going to a church where they're lighting candles or where they're passing around something, whether they're using kneelers. They're attracted to putting their whole self. I think this is maybe where um, modern culture's desire for integrity aligns with these high traditions embodiment rituals that are trying mm. to get body to follow mind and heart and mind and heart to follow body. Yeah. And this is a real problem in mainstream evangelicalism where you just sit in a comfy chair and you just stare at someone up front who is entertaining you. And if that's your church experience and you're not really participating, that's a problem. I lived in England for a few years and I know you visited England many times. And in some of the older churches that I visited, um, it's actually designed where you sit across from each other so so the the chairs are actually the pews are actually lined up on the side of the building almost like bleachers mm. and the congregation is facing one another yeah. yeah and yeah there's a stage because there's a pulpit and there's things going on there but if you're just sitting forward you're actually looking at other believers mm. and there's an intentionality to that right the, the the focus is on god not on a stage and so I think some of those traditions point us in the right direction of how to capture what has been fundamental importance of the early church. Yeah, one of one of my one of my favorite memories of of being in England when I was there was go there was this little Anglican church right by the study center where I was at where I would have to walk by it to go uh, to go to this this the study center and, and and when I would walk by it, it was nestled in Birmingham. It was nestled kind of right off this main road, but there was this like tree grove of trees, and then you would walk up to the as you were walking up to this church, which was like five hundred years old. I mean, it was this, right. this beautiful right. old church, 
and you would walk up and the first thing you would walk by is you would have to walk through the the cemetery so you would walk through the church cemetery uh as you would as you would go to the church and and i just remember the psychology of that was so cool hmm. like because these were all people who had been worshiping at this church for years family members right whole families are buried uh at this church where they had been worshiping for years in the psychology of like walking through this cemetery, we don't do any of that. No, I don't know any evangelical church that has a cemetery like right outside the front right. doors. Like it's usually in a gymnasium or, uh, you know, in a, in a building in the burbs or whatnot. We don't, we don't like, you don't walk through the the names of the people, the, the, the bodies of people that like built the church. But the psychology of that was so powerful because as you were, as you were coming to worship, you weren't just coming yourself. You were you were coming with the communion of the saints. You were coming with the whole body. You were coming with right the cloud of witnesses. I actually was just reading a few weeks ago uh, for a, a, a book I'm researching on uh, a canon law for Anglicans, canon law around what constitutes a church, and it was in the 11th century. Um, so th- this actually would have been this would have been Roman Catholic canon law, but. Uh, Canon law in the 11th century, which is basically church, uh, church like uh, church practice, was that the church did not just constitute the people; the church constituted the cemetery outside the church. So the church was not just the people inside; mm. it was the bodies outside too. Yeah. So the yeah. church includes those bodies, and yeah. I, 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 I wonder if there's a longing in us. I mean, we are all obsessed right now with 23andMe and genetics and knowing our yeah. history. Yeah. There's there's something in us that just longs to be a part of something that transcends our life. It goes back, and I don't know any of my history. I don't know, you know, if my great grandparents loved yeah. Jesus. I don't know anything about my great great grandparents. I don't know anything about that. But I know I want to know it because because right, it's it's the whole tradition in the Old Testament of whenever a saint would die, you would always carry their bones with you everywhere you'd go. They're always <laughs> carrying Moses's bones and Abram's bones and whatnot. Yeah, and there's yeah. something to that. You yeah. you bear you bear the people of God are not just the living, they're the dead too. And I think there's something in 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 Catholicism, Anglicanism, Orthodoxy that really tap you into that, activate that part of your soul that the human longs for. Um you know, how do how do we do that as evangelicals? I don't know. Do we start putting our churches in cemeteries? I don't know. More bones. I think the bottom line is more bones. Yeah. Well, I, I if we had to summarize and I'm being super super stereotypical and broad. Um, evangelicals tend to focus on the future. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, the higher traditions uh, tend to focus on the past. Yeah. And I think it's not one or the other, but I think we know what we're hungry for and what we're missing. Uh, as you're talking about, especially the cemetery and the bones, I was thinking about Ch- GK Chesterton. One of his, you know, more memorable quotes is, um, Focusing on tradition, he says, is democracy of the dead as well as the living. Yeah. What he's basically saying there is, if you have a problem, right? If I have a problem, I'm going to call AJ Swoboda. I'm going to say, AJ, I have this problem. Talk it through with me. Tell me what you think. And then you'll give me your terrible advice and I'll go ask my wife. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Right, uh, right. But, but Chesterton says, why are we so quick to ask each other and not quick to pick up the phone and call the dead, right? That's yep. what tradition is. Yep democracy of the dead like and when you're taking votes 
are you also counting hands in the cemetery? I think that's kind of what you're saying, AJ. Yeah. But, but can I, okay. Can I respond to that though? We, but, yeah. but, but two, but I th- saying that I, I love Chesterton. I love that. This is yeah. such a great yeah. idea. The democracy of the dead, the evangelical response to that. I also really identify with yeah. because the dead can be wrong. They're not right. Cause they're dead. <laughs> that's right. So, so just because they're dead doesn't mean they're yeah. right. And the minute we're like, well, it's all tradition. Then we're just creating a dictatorship of the dead. And we're right. just making the dead like the 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 soul power. So I think there there's a, a an important evangelical Protestant balance to this that we want to honor tradition, yet also recognize. And this is where sola scriptura and high view scripture mm-hmm. is so important: is that even tradition needs to be held to account by scripture and, yes, and what God has revealed. Of course. So it's a it's a it's a beautiful balance between those two. Yeah, and actually another great quote. I use this in class. This is Yaroslav Pelikan. He says. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Isn't that a great quote? Yeah, great. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, meaning you're clinging on to dead things from the past that you ought not to. So it's kind of like take the best of tradition. Well, you know, we're, we're drawing to a close in the next few minutes, but what I, what I want to say about those people who are dabbling <laughs> in the dark mm. arts of considering high tradition, I would say you don't have to completely step into a whole nother denomination or tradition to value those things. In fact, you can bring them. There's no reason a good Pentecostal like AJ can't read Augustine or can't read Maximus the Confessor or Cyprian of Carthage or even Aquinas. Like One thing that people notice about my biblical commentaries are that I love to interact with the with the patristic writers. They're not always right, and sometimes they say absolutely crazy crap. <laughs> and so you kind of have to be like, I don't know where you got that from, but we're not going to talk about that. But then they say things that are extraordinary, beautiful. It's almost like talking to your grandparents. Yeah, and like you have to screen out some of the crazy stuff they say, right. but then right. they're these gems of wisdom. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, of ancient yeah. wisdom that they bring. It's like this with the ancient church. You know, I I want I wish more seminary students and college students could read pre-modern Christian writers. Absolutely. Because not only would it shake you out of your comfort zone, but they do have nuggets of wisdom from a bygone era. And we live in such, we live in such depressing times. You know, I, I have these conversations all the time with my family about how much the world is up in the air from a climate standpoint, war, nuclear war, AI, all of that, economic collapse, and I think that we need to get our heads sometimes out of the now and look, take the long view. And that's what these traditions help us do is they help us take a longer view. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would, you just said something that I just think bears repeating. And that is that, that actually for, for some need, you need to hear this, that if, if you go to another movement, you, you may actually be robbing your current community of your passion. Yeah. Like your exactly. desire to see, the depth of tradition more embraced by Christians, maybe that's God inviting you to bring that into yeah. the evangelical community you're part of, or the charismatic your church you're part of, or the or the, the Protestant church you're part of. To, to say nothing of the fact that this mythic idea, if I go to like, if I go to become Catholic or Orthodox, like I'm arriving at the pure community, I just, we just, you just need to remember none of these communities either claim perfection Right. Nor are perfect. They can't embody it. Yeah. And they can't embody. Yeah. They can't cover it. The, the, they're not perfect. And by, by running to them as though, 
as though that's a fix is you actually end up chasing a mirage and doing great harm to yourself because it's just going to be a few years when you begin to figure out like a, a friend of mine actually converted, converted and he uses the word converted. So I'm comfortable using that word. Uh, he converted to Catholicism from an evangelical community about seven years ago. And he's been a Catholic now for seven years. And to hear him now talk about his frustrations with Catholicism brings tremendous joy to my heart <laughs> because, because he's just having the same problems That's just funny. on the other side. Yeah. And you, you're not going to find that perfect community and it's okay. Um, uh, that, that, that it's a beautiful Eugene Peterson line where he says the greatest enemy of the church God has for you is the church that you wish you had. Right. And you're 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 not going to find it. It's it's not a real thing. You don't worship angels, so stop chasing them. Um, so I, I would say the the grass on the greener the green greener grass thing. Just be very cautious about that. Um, and, and and yeah, go ahead. I, I would add to that. You know, like lately, I've been reading a lot of Augustine. That's why I keep talking about Augustine uh, because I'm looking at Augustine's theology of love. And I love having conversations with my Catholic friends because of their natural love for Augustine. So they. My Catholic friends, they're not saying, Nije, come be a Catholic. They may, they may, you know, deep down want that. They just love that I'm studying the things they love. Yes. And yep. that can be enough sometimes. It can be enough to say, I really resonate and I and I overlap like a Venn diagram with some Catholic things. You know, people have a hard time pinpointing my tradition because there's some Bonhoeffer in me, right? So in yeah. some ways I'm yep. Lutheran and there's some Catholic in me and there's some Pentecostal in me. And it'll be hard for me to just settle down and say, okay, I'm going to have to choose. Uh, you should be invested in a local church. You should be passionate about serving that. But it's okay to have different influences in your life and to be able to have some things in common with Catholics and say, I value this, but I don't want a pope. Or to say mm-hmm. with Orthodox, I value this, but you know, I see things differently on women. Um, I, think, I think that's important. And so I guess what we're saying is don't be quick to 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 fully jump into a whole nother camp and and just read up, learn, enjoy, kind of go on a sightseeing tour yes. and enjoy what Catholics offer and and glean the best of what they offer and bring that to your tradition. Yep. I love when Nijay, my wife and I go over to dinner to somebody else's house and they cook us like their best dish, which is yeah. usually what you do when you have people over. You want, yeah, you want to do yeah, a little showing do. off, like here's oh, our, yeah. here's our, you know, here's our blah, 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 blah. And we're like, just you love blowing people's minds, right? Yeah. I love going over to people's house and eating their best meal. And, and I usually, when I come home on the drive home, I'm like, gosh, I wish we cooked like them. Yeah. But you got to always remember (laughs) always. Yeah. You don't, you always got to remember the next meal. Yeah. Because the next day they're eating mac and cheese, just like you are. (laughs) That's funny. Or I was going to say you would may adopt something with like, what is that? Carbum? I'm going to use carbum now, but you don't know how to make it. Right, right, right. Just don't, don't take the best of somebody else and compare it with the worst of yours. Yeah. Ooh. Be I very like cautious to like be like, oh, they really no, they 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 do a good lasagna. Okay. <laughs> they do a good lasagna, but don't judge their awesome lasagna with your hot pockets. Because that's a <laughs> fair, that's an unfair comparison. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. They, I, like Actually, I haven't had lunch yet. I could go for a hot pocket. <laughs> hot pocket. Thank okay. You, Maybe that's a good stopping point, AJ. <laughs> I okay. Final word. AJ and I both love our Catholic friends so much. Yes. And we've learned so much. Yep. And we're um, not Catholic. <laughs> yep. But a lot of the enchantment, I think, um, needs to be explored, needs to be probed. We need to know where that enchantment's coming from. And I think it's good, but yeah. it can be good without without kind of getting, you know, throwing out the old and, and starting with the new. Yep. That's exactly right.
Love it. Nijay, thanks for bringing some wisdom. I think this is good. And I know uh, at least two listeners that have emailed questions about this. So I hope uh, this is at least from our perspective, a helpful conversation. Um, But yeah, thanks, Nijay. Awesome. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening, wherever you may be. And uh, we'll be back with you uh, in our next episode of Slow Theology. God's grace and peace.